Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. This is a unique chance to really speak with you because for the first time in many years, I really had the, the opportunity of being semi-retired at this point, although I do have a few things I'm working on, and I'd love to talk to you about that too. Uh, I had a chance to reflect back on the last 30 years and uh, ask myself that, that proverbial question, right, which is, gosh, if I, if I only knew then what I know now, you know, how different things might have been. Uh, not that I have any regrets. Um, in fact, the, the point at which I founded a company, became an entrepreneur, it was at the inspiration of John McFarland, another uh, alum who came out of econ and actually, no, computer science, founded software.com. Uh, that business ran on the public market up to $2 billion in market cap. Uh, I ran into him shortly after discovering the, the epiphany idea to found a company. And his words were, to me were just plain and simple. He wasn't even looking at me. He was picking up some piece of paper behind me. And he just sort of said, I was just channeling John McFarland. That's exactly what his voice sounds like. <laughs> Did you get that? He basically said, you will not regret it. And it, you know, just sort of that last little kick in the ass to put me over the edge and start a company. And um, so it's, it's a great opportunity uh, uh, to be here and uh, uh, to share with you the, the notion that uh, entrepreneurship has great rewards. Uh, it has given me the opportunity to, to spend a couple weeks reflecting on, on what I did learn. And I, I titled my presentation uh, around a concept that I, I really wish I knew in 1982 and 1992 and 1995. And, it wasn't until 1998 that I really figured this thing out. And uh, it's, it comes really more out of the economics discipline. How many uh, business econ majors do we have here? <coughs> yeah, that's a good showing. Right on. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a microeconomic theory. Sorry to you folks that aren't studied in engineering, but I'm going to try to make it real world. I'm not going to make it very theoretical. We're going to talk about substitutes and complements in any industry as a strategy for really understanding what's happening in the industry, and specifically large industries that are undergoing big changes. Because as I came to find out, it took me many years to figure it out, uh, in some of the biggest industries undergoing some of the biggest changes, the, uh, the sources of those changes, the, the, the genesis of that change, does not necessarily begin in big companies with big products selling to big customers. The biggest changes I came to find out, especially in the computing and the telephony and the the broadcast media markets really took root in very small places. They were started by, on these changes were initiated by entrepreneurs, you guys. You know, this is the domain of the entrepreneur, some of these biggest changes. The big companies can't see it. Or they see it, but they are afraid of it. Or they see it and they're afraid of it, um, but when they try to execute it, their culture causes them to fail to execute on these ideas. And I, I just thought it was a, a, a tremendous thing to share with you because it not only brings the message of uh, encouragement, that there are some enormous opportunities out there going forward over the next 30 years um, that are kind of protected markets. They're exclusive to, to, to the domain of the startup entrepreneur. That's the good news. I want you to be encouraged. But I also want you to understand there's some bad news here. right? And the bad news is these particular markets don't come with a lot of early validation, a lot of, a lot of early attaboys and pats on the back. In fact, if you take a concept for a very big change and you go meet with the largest players, the incumbents, the, the pundits in the space, 
you're likely to get some very, very firm no interest. So you've got to come at that space with some new tools. And I want to take you through a little bit of those tools here. Uh, hopefully you won't spend 16 years getting to the point where John McFarland says no regrets and you start a company. So quick note on my background before I take you into some of these tools that I hope to share with you. Um, I did indeed spend 16 years. I was lucky enough to uh, get my first job just outside of the Henley Gate. You go down a mile, look left. There's a two-story building there on uh, Kellogg Avenue. And I spent eight years in that building really un beginning to understand the data communications industry. I was very fascinated with personal computers when I got out of school. And my fascination wasn't so much with what would you do with a PC, but how would you connect them together? And uh, I, I had the opportunity to work with a brilliant entrepreneur. He was a senior at UCSB when he dropped out at 21 and started a company, sold it later for $25 million. Serial entrepreneur locally, Bob Dolan. Um, really fascinating guy, became a lifelong friend and actually became a co-founder when I started a company 16 years later. But Bob taught me many things. One of the things that he taught me was that uh, TCPIP would actually come to dominate corporate networks. And then I extrapolated from that that the internet protocol, or TCP IP, would come to offer online services out to consumers. And then beyond that, the internet would in fact disrupt the telephone and the broadcast industry. In other words, you could make voice phone calls over the internet. You could stream music and videos over the internet instead of subscribing to cable TV. And this was something, fortunately or unfortunately, I actually came to understand pretty early on because that was my job. I was paid to suss out what protocols were going to win. Now, this may actually sound kind of crazy to you guys because it was 30 years ago and it was not plain dead obvious then that, that an internet would ever exist. And if I were to ask you a preposterous question, how many of you guys have heard of the internet? Come on, get your arms up. Right, obviously you've all heard of it, right? But if that question was asked in this room 30 years ago, nobody would have raised their hands. Not only did the internet not exist, there was no thing such, such thing as a PC. Actually, a PC had been around for a few months. And so it was a very different world. And I went out to understand this new world of internet or PCs and PC connections, figured out that the internet was going to disrupt a lot of things at a pretty early time. And I started socializing that with a lot of the big players in the space. I switched from datacom into voicecom, spent eight years at a company down in the bluffs above Rincon. Uh, another alumni-funded uh, UCSB company. All these companies came out of uh, Glenn Culler's labs from the 70s. UCSB was one of the first nodes on the internet. Uh, they were also one of the, uh, 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 the universities that was experimenting in digital speech and signal processing. Uh, a lot of the Nokia patents actually came out of UCSB. So leaving here and only going about you know, a mile away and building a career in voice and data communications uh, digital voice and data communications was a pretty natural thing to do. This wasn't like I was trying to make something happen in Santa Barbara that wasn't natural for Santa Barbara. This is actually a hotbed. It was then in that. I, you guys are much clearer today on what's hot now. I just want to make that point clear, right? Uh, if you were to ask me what's the last 15 years of research at UCSB led us to, uh, you guys would have a better answer to that than I do. But at the time, these were the things that were new. And the tools that I used to evaluate those industries and find opportunities to hatch companies within those industries, I wanted to share those with you. So those will break down into how do you understand the industry forces that are shaping change? After you understand those opportunities, how do you go about validating and 
and testing your ideas. And there's a unique approach to that I wanted to share with you. And then fundamentally, what does it feel like to make the leap? What do you get to in terms of state of mind when you realize it's time to start a business? Now, many of you may say when the VC writes the check for $2 million. But I'm talking about before you've even written the business plan. You know, in my case, I was in the industry. I had two small kids. I had a mortgage payment. I had a day job, right? I had to basically quit my day job to start a company. So um, for me, the leap was, am I going to stop my day job and start writing a business plan? So it had very little to do with funding, and it had everything to do with commitment. So I'll share with you a little bit about that. And then uh, I do want to spend a moment just share, sharing with you what the company was that we started. And after we'd done all our homework, the company actually almost drove itself. You know, I don't want to minimize what it takes to get funding, build a team, launch a product, find customers, serve the customers, go public. That's what we did. And it was, a, a, as you might imagine, a voice-over data, voice-over IP business that we founded. And uh, it was sort of widely recognized in Santa Barbara as a really neat little successful story. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. But the majority of my comments are going to kind of go to this stage that I think you guys are in right now which is the idea generation, the idea creation or ideation phase. Am I right about that? Are, are you guys bootstrapping funded companies right now? Or are you uh, working with ideas and shaping ideas and understanding industries? Which, which are the two? First one? Second one? Yeah, that's what I thought. OK. Hopefully I'm on target. OK, so bear with me. This is a bit ambitious for those of you that aren't econ majors. But if you're interested in an industry, the first thing that I would implore you to do is to look at the history of that industry as far back as it goes. Now, I was interested in personal electronics. The PC had just come out. That's what I wanted to understand. But you couldn't go back in time. There were mainframes, but they weren't personal devices. So I jumped into music. Uh, someone told me, look, it's the transistor. Go all the way back where the transistor found a market. And it was really in the second stage in the 60s when the transistor first showed up in a consumer class personal device, and it was in the form of a personal radio. And the, the first thing that I came to understand when I looked at that is that the radio itself uh, is an interesting device. You, as an engineer, could crack it open, and you could see that the transistor enabled FM modulation and stereo, whereas the earlier generation of tube radio was amplitude modulated. Forgive me, I'm not an engineer, so I'm going to get some of this wrong. Uh, and it only delivered mono. So this was kind of an innovation. And if you looked inside the box of the product, it was very fascinating. But even more fascinating, and what I would implore you to do in your chosen industries, is don't crack the box on the product as you look at history. Instead, step back from the product and look at the boundary of the whole industry. Look at the sphere within which the product exists. All of the vendors of the product all of the customers of the product, all the channels that it sells through, all of the complementary products that are required for that product to be successful. What do I mean by complementary products? You, you econ majors probably studied this in microeconomic theory. It had to do with um, elasticity of demand. And the point was, if your product had lots of complementary products, it would have stronger demand. So for example, what is required for a radio to be successful? This is, sorry, we're going to just do a a moment of microeconomic lecture here. Is it enough just to go to the, to the store and buy a radio, whether it's the tube radio or the transistor radio? Or do you need batteries? Batteries. That's a good one. Yeah. 
Yeah, the maker of the, the, the transistor radio doesn't have battery, but, sorry I'm going to pick on you guys a little bit, you're still cracking open the box. You're opening up the, the, the radio and you're looking inside and you're saying there's a battery in there. What else is required? I'm, I hope you guys get a little epiphany from this. That radio sucks if when you turn it on there's no, where's the sound come from? You're also opening, ah, good. Where's the radio station? Inside the product or outside of it? It's in the industry, and it's absolutely necessary. This notion of a product only succeeding, living or dying, based upon the availability of complementary products is critical to entrepreneurship. Critical to entrepreneurship. And this is what I started doing after graduating with an econ degree, so I had a little head start. You know, I understood you know, what industry organizations were, understood monopolies versus duopolies, and I understood elasticity of demand. So what's another example of a complementary product that made the transistor radio successful? Headphones. Headphones. That's sort of almost inside the box. Comes, com comes in the package, right? OK, I'm going to cut to the chase. I don't want to take too long doing this, right? Where does the sound come from? The radio station. Where does the radio station get the sound? Artists. How do the artists organize their recordings and distribute them? Record labels, right? This industry, which just looks like some consumer electronics devices, is actually much more sophisticated than it appears. And I would encourage you, in whatever field you're interested in, to suss out the complementary products that are critical to the success, because those are your strategic partners. One thing I'll point out here, just to, just to drive this home a little bit further, right? One of the things that happened that made the transistor radio so much more successful than the portable tube radio in the 50s was the fact that the audience buying it were young kids and they liked to listen to rock and roll, right? And rock and roll was being recorded in stereo, right? And stereo required FM modulation. So there's this entire domain of innovation around a new form of sound modulation a new type, and by the way, the, the only way you could do FM, my understanding, is to have a transistor to decode the FM modulation. So this little movement here wasn't just a sort of cheaper, smaller, um, uh, more compact uh, version of the tube radio. It actually introduced new content, right, and a new transmission network, FM modulation. If you go forward, you see the same thing in the 70s, right? Um, now what we added here was not broadcast music, but now the cassette tape. So one of the complementary organizations in industry was the trade association that said, this is what a cassette tape looks like. Some of you guys probably don't even know what a, what a cassette tape is. How many of you guys know what a cassette tape is? Oh, good. Thank God. OK. Um, and then you know, a, a fascinating transformation here was this miniaturization uh, when the Walkman came out. Okay, so you guys get, or recently got, while you're here in your early 20s, roughly, the iPad. When I was sitting in your seat, I got the Walkman. Right? And I was pretty excited about it. I mean, yeah, you guys got a fully integrated digital platform that did music, video, uh, uh, Skype, video, and voice calling, right? It was a computer platform, right? Personal electronics in my age was the Walkman, right? But, you know, there was a transistor in that, and right when the Walkman came out, the PC was announced. 
So now you have this explosion in complexity in the market. So the other point I need to make here before we leave this is much simpler than complementary products, and that is this question of substitute products. Let me ask you another question. Bear with me. Um, this is a tougher question, but it, it can be answered very quickly. Of these four products, which product, when introduced, actually just grew the market amongst people who had formerly not had a radio? Anybody have a guess? You're 25% odds. The Walkman? Yes. The Walkman did because very few people had bought a boombox. That was a tough way to get stereo portably, right? So a lot of people, when, when the Walkman first came out, it wasn't necessarily boombox people that bought it. A bunch of people down further in the market that had not previously bought that stereo equipment bought it. But the other thing that came uh, to mind here for me was that when I was studying this in the early 80s was the transistor radio was one of the first disruptive innovations or disruptive substitutions in the market. And there's a principle here that's at work that's so critical to innovation in, in computing and telephony and digital media in general. And that's this idea that a certain type of innovation will enter the market and satisfy the needs of the people who don't yet have any type of product like that. They're not the most sophisticated users who bought the earlier generation. Case in point, and I'm going to jump forward here. Who bought the first PCs? Were they the same people that had bought many computers? Not a chance. The PC introduced computing to a whole new class of individuals who had not participated in the market for many computers. Now, over time, what happened? The Windows Intel monopoly of the early PC expanded up market. Hopefully, these terms aren't too abstract for you and started to displace or substitute out the mini-computer business. So you got two things happening here. Just That's, my, that's the extent of my microeconomic micro lecture. Very important, because what happened in the next 30 years was very difficult to understand unless you embrace these two principles. Right? What happened in 1980 was, alongside the personal electronic music business, was a personal computing business. And in 1990... The personal telephone came out. Prior to that, the cordless, or the, excuse me, the uh, cellular phone, uh, there were really only shared landlines and cordless phones. And then uh, what happened in the 2000s uh, was, was a dramatic convergence where you started to get multiple functions, both phone and music and computing, in one platform. And to really dig into this and look at all of the complementary products and all the substitutions that happen is extremely complex. <laughs> You know, I spent 16 years figuring this out between 1980s and the, and the late 90s, um, and it was not easy. It was kind of a painful process. I'm going to describe that to you next. Uh, but it did lead me to the threshold of a great business opportunity. Um, so I'm going to net this out for you guys, and, and, I, and I'd love to hear you guys um, resonate with this if, if you're buying into it, because it is a key principle of competitive success in probably the largest market on the face of the planet. The people that won in this space going forward and versus the people that lost were those that used a complementary product strategy called an open platform. And I don't care whether you're Microsoft defeating Apple because the Microsoft operating system attracted more software developers and actually had an open platform attracting independent hardware developers, or you're looking at a different category of this market 
and you're asking, will TCP/IP beat Novell Netware? Which is probably a, anybody ever heard of Novell? Probably not one person, right? So when I came out of school, the emergent successful computer networking protocol was proprietary. It was operated by Eric Schmidt, the C, former CEO of Google. He ran a company called Novell, and Novell was in the business of hooking together PCs. But there's this little teeny, excuse my expression, crappy protocol, a much lesser, smaller protocol called TCP/IP, that completely destroyed Novell as a company. And it not only destroyed Novell, it eliminated NetBIOS from Microsoft as a protocol, SNA from IBM as a protocol, DECnet from Digital Equipment Corporation. I could go on and on. So the idea here is that these open platforms, whether they were protocols like TCP/IP or operating systems like Microsoft, enabled tons of third parties to innovate to make the demand for your product higher. What's the last open platform here that is demonstrating remarkable success in the market today? If you go all the way up to current times, what company has innovated a operating system platform that has attracted more developers than Google? What was the answer? Apple, Apple iOS. Yeah, why did Apple win? That's a very interesting question. They lost to Microsoft. You guys may not even know that. Apple was the heir apparent to the PC industry. But the original Apple architecture had proprietary operating system, proprietary apps, and proprietary hardware. Right? The same architecture that they use today to succeed was a failed strategy in the early 80s. And Microsoft beat it with a complementary product strategy called PC-DOS that became Windows and the rest is history. So Apple today has turned that formula around and now has a very elegant development environment for iOS applications running on all the Apple products. And it's hands down beating the Google Android platform right now, at least, in terms of number of developers, which is what confers market advantage. The number of developers equates to the number of people building things that increase demand for your products. If you understand this um, principle, even just a little bit, then you're in a position as an entrepreneur to start to pick, or at least theorize, who the winners and losers are going to be. And if you're entering a market, and you're, you have a complement a, a product, and you're going to deliver it through a complementary partner, but that partner has a bad strategy, and they're not going to succeed, then you're not going to succeed. You can't bet on the wrong horses for long, especially in this modern information economy. So your ability as an entrepreneur in any industry to assess and, and, and make a reasonable prediction as to who the win who's, which are the horses that are going to win and lose is important. When I got out of school, Sony, Digital Equipment Corporation, and Nortel were dominating, respectively, the personal electronic space for publishing, computing, and telephone. And, you know, DEC and Nortel, you guys may not even have heard of those companies. That's kind of my point, right? If you jump forward, what you see is that those companies, which were the largest companies at the time, really failed to anticipate the convergence of the space. On the other hand, companies like Apple 
branched out from the PC into the entertainment space with the iPod, then into the phone space with the iPhone, and they developed a platform strategy for lots of compliments. And that appears to be the winning strategy going forward. And Apple, in order to do that, didn't, they stopped thinking of themselves as a computer company. And they didn't even think of themselves as a computer company that was also in the telephone business and the entertainment business. They redefined the industry structure. I mean, this is, this is the height of strategy. And whether you can practice this level of strategy in your own business or understand it in the world around you, either one is going to be incredibly valuable. So, so where did Apple, where did Apple get, get to with that, right? Um, well, they got to a place where they, every time you hear Steve Jobs or Tim Cook speak, just listen to their earnings call, um, you hear them say things like, we don't really care about Flash. Now, how many of you guys wish Apple had Flash in their products? Okay, and I do too. How many times have you heard them say, this is why we don't have Flash? Well, the, the language that they use is that, and whether true or not, because I'm not sure I believe it either, is that uh, we are focused on delivering great user experiences. And it doesn't matter whether it's music, browsing, telephone calls, or email or anything else that you can do on their, on their computer. They're, they're no longer limited by the boundaries of a telephone, a computer, and an entertainment device. And that changing of the structure is what worked for them. It also worked for Cisco. Cisco recently exited the flip business. They had this little thing called a flip video. Do any of you guys ever have a flip video device? Right? They reset their boundaries. Cisco now sells networking gear to the telephone companies, the cable companies, and obviously, of the backbone of the internet and corporate lands, right? So they moved across these industries and succeeded. And on the content side, Oracle's doing the same. You know, it used to be if you were a computer company like Oracle, when I got out of school, um, the modern thing to do would be to not operate a business that delivered both hardware and software. Hardware and software, software separation was a very important structural element. There were two different companies doing that. Microsoft taught us that. Right? Microsoft did the operating system. Somebody else did the hardware. Sort of now Dell, right? What did Oracle do recently? They pulled an Apple. Whoa. Apple went, uh, Oracle went out and bought Sun Microsystems. Oracle is now an integrated hardware software company under the same roof. Now this, you, as you guys can tell, this, is, this stuff really excites me. This is, this is good stuff, right? But I haven't really given you the punchline yet. You know, the, the reward for all of this, figuring this stuff out, uh, really comes when you sit down and you see a business opportunity and you go out into the world and you say, you know, I'm going to bet that the PC is going to replace the mini computer and DEC is going to lose, right? And a company like Apple or someone's going to win. Um, and that's what I set out to do uh, when I graduated. It was all about having ideas about what was going to be big and going to big places to validate them. That was my mistake. And I spent many years making that mistake because if you took the idea of a PC to Digital Equipment Corporation, it was very dangerous to them. That, as a source of feedback, led to things like, um, we really don't like your idea. Right? And that happened uh, when I talked to a professor here at UCSB about using a $5,000 personal computer 
to do the work of a $50,000 minicomputer in 1981. Dennis Maroka, he might even still be here. Um, and here was the feedback I got. Okay, 10x cost advantage. If you had a small enough business with a small enough accounting department, you could do the work on a PC. Of course, that's obvious now. Intuit, right? What's the name of their product, Bill? Um, Quicken, Quicken, QuickBooks, right? It's huge. It didn't exist back then. I was fumbling around with that idea in 1981, and I took it to my professor, and he gave me a grade which I'm ashamed to mention. And not, needless to say, it was not an A. It wasn't a B either. It was sort of barely a C, right? And that's the kind of feedback that you're going to get if you've discovered something that's disruptive to the existing big players, and you go to the big players to talk to them about it. So I'm trying to give you the encouragement to stick with your convictions. If you think the industry is shifting in this manner, stick with it. And instead of going to the big guys, which I did in music, and I ended up doing in, uh, in narrowcasting and broadcasting with the newspapers, instead of doing that, scale down your idea. Take the concept to a smaller organization. And my, my mission, uh, after about a decade of failed validation of a bunch of false negative feedback, <coughs> Uh, was to go into the telephone industry and convince the telephone providers that this convergence of computing, telephone, and broadcasting was going to lead to something called unified messaging. And this became my sort of cause celebre of, of the 90s. Uh, to cut to the chase, that only went so far. They loved the idea, but they couldn't execute on it until we actually and this is how I came to be talking with John McFarlane at software.com. They were an email company. We put together a voice system, a fax system, and an email system. And we launched it in Santa Barbara with, at last, authentic end users of a service. Up until that point, I had these grand big ideas, was socializing them in big places, and not once had I actually encountered an end user. The power of the voice of an authentic end user can't be trivialized, can't be minimized. Yes, I was talking to like, people that were running a roofing business in, in Santa Barbara and a, and a real estate agent. I was used to having meetings with you know, senior executives of the world's telcos, right? But their voice was so much more important than the voice of these big companies that were kind of afraid of these ideas. So you've heard this many times, right? Listen to the voice of the customer, engage the customer, Validate your ideas with the customers. Well, I finally did that. And what was interesting about it, you know, I thought I, I'd gotten to the point where I wasn't terribly smart getting out of school. It took me a lot of years uh, to really suss out the computing and telephone industry. Um, took me even longer to sort of come to grips with this idea of, of a unified mailbox with voices, faxes, and emails in it. Um, and up until that point, it was it, my mindset was that as an entrepreneur, I'm the center of this idea factory, and I've got to come up with good ideas. And when we threw unified messaging out to 200 users in Santa Barbara, 191 of them didn't like it. The feedback was largely negative, except nine of them stood up and said, yeah, but if it only did the fax thing, I would love it. And love it they did, because that was the point at which we built an entire company around an even smaller version of unified messaging. 
and it became highly disruptive to the idea of paying 45 bucks for a fax line. We were able to offer Actually, let me stop before I describe that service to you and let you know that, that when we finally talked with an end user and they validated this simple idea of a virtual fax number, and I'll tell you in a moment how we, how we built the product and deployed it, um, the experience of that moment, and it was literally not measured in, in weeks or months or years, it came down to a moment, was that the entire desire to see big changes happen in industry was totally replaced by the feeling of a really high energy devotion to these specific users because we knew there were millions of them. And I would encourage you to, to whatever you have to do, um, uh, create a radar screen of your own sort of emotional state of mind and be sensitive to the, the entrepreneurial spirit sort of rising up right, when you encounter the right opportunity, because it's absolutely what happened in our case. And now, it might sound kind of like a puff piece, like, well, so what? So you got excited. You know, I got excited about my idea last week, and you got excited about your idea last week, and, and what, what did it really do? Well, what it really did, it, is be, it became the basis, that, that dedication and the devotion of the users and the excitement that was generated. I'm not talking about ideas now. In fact, the idea for that fax line came from the users. It wasn't even our idea. We were really sourcing it from this customer we discovered. And we, didn't, we were kind of humbled. You know, shoot, now we're building a company on an idea. It wasn't even our idea. You know? But what we did have was this energy that was infectious. Right? Was there any problem getting investors? No. Was there any problem getting team members? No. Was there any problem getting the customers so excited they told their friends about it? No. So you want to look for that. It's a very legitimate thing, and it becomes part of a leadership strategy to really motivate and acquire the team. So very quickly, well, then we'll get to questions. Um, we started a company, and that was 1999. Uh, the first product was a, uh, a, a virtual telephone number that we sourced from the uh, telephone industry, plugged it into a server on the Internet, and it allowed you to receive a fax to your email. Uh, the service became known in the industry as eFax. That wasn't our trade name. Everybody, anybody here heard of eFax or encountered it? Yeah, it, it sort of transformed the face of faxing, and we were there first. Um, we, uh, this thing cost us 15 cents a month. That's what we rented phone numbers for. There were no other costs. And uh, even, we even got paid whenever a fax would come into the number. We'd create a competitive local exchange carrier that actually received revenue when calls came into it. So we ended up uh, you know, really building the entire company around this image of service to the customer. That's how devoted we were. You know, it was really remarkable. Uh, and what we found is that it was a little expensive to acquire these customers because there was really nothing viral. It was just word of mouth. Uh, but it replaced something in the market, 15 cents a month, cost of goods, $45 price in the market if you bought it from the phone company. And that, that actually is almost a 100x difference in costing. Uh, led to a very successful first product launch. Um, we scaled that business up, and then uh, we, we figured if the, if the consumers of our service were very interested in these simple products like the fax piece of a larger system, we could do the same with voice. 
And in November of 1999, we launched uh, a nationwide free service that helped you out if you were dialing up to the internet. This was actually something that one customer out of 200 had mumbled a little bit about. Wow, this would allow me to still receive phone calls while I'm connected to the internet over my phone line. Now, you guys aren't, aren't that far into broadband that you don't remember dial-up, right? Do you guys remember dial-up? Quick question, can any of you guys really remember life before the internet? Oh my God, it just, God, it just kills me. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a hell of a transformation in, in, in my professional career, span of 30 years, right? If you'd asked that question of this class in 1981, you know, sort of, how many of you guys know what the internet is? Nobody would have raised their hands, right? You, know, you would have to ask a question like, can you guys remember life before television? You know, that's, that's the question you would have had to ask to get that response was, no, I, I can't really remember life before television. So it's a tremendous transformation. We, we, uh, we brought this product to market, and uh, uh, the nice thing about it, if you look at the economics there, is it was a substitute for buying a second phone line for your dial-up modem so that your family could still receive phone calls. Uh, it only cost us 40 cents a month to operate it, but the CAC, or cost of customer acquisition, was actually less than 10 cents initially. Um, and uh, uh, that was because the service was viral. So we, we, uh, we were designing this around um, the needs of the consumer, and uh, we came up with a great distribution strategy. Bear in mind that this was something we were selling to people while they were online, and we were selling it to people while they were experiencing the problem. And, and the customers actually told us what the value proposition was. You guys have probably heard a speaker or two, maybe John Greathouse say something like, you've got to figure out the value proposition. Make it compelling. You know? I used to work with John. John worked at Callway for two years. Um, and, uh, and the users told us what the value proposition is. Never miss another call while online. Better than paying $25 for a second phone line. I mean, it wasn't even that clever. Once again, we weren't coming up with this stuff. We were just listening to the customer, right? And what happened is uh, half of the U.S. market within a year or two were our customers. Half of the U.S. consumer Internet market signed up for this service. I don't know what the other half were doing, right? Um, AOL ended up entering this space, but... Um, and we were able to take, of the 15 million, right when the capital ran out in the dot-com era... There was a time when capital was really easy to raise, and then there was a time where you could not ever raise capital in 2001. But right at the point where the, the market crashed and Yahoo went from $180 a share to $20 a share, something like that, right at the point of that crash, we turned on a, a billing system that our customers asked us to build. We weren't even coming up with the billing system, right? We'd gone to these um, 2 million very active voice users of the service, and we asked them, if you had to get a credit card out and pay us five bucks a month, would you buy this enhanced feature? And about 10% of them came back and said, sure. And we, were, we built the product, we were ready to launch it, and we did one more customer survey. We talked to the customers through an email survey response on the web, right? Those things were possible back in, you know, the Paleolithic period when I was an entrepreneur, right? That's a joke. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and the customers came back and they said, you know, you know if, you, if you'll let us just put this on our phone bill, 30% of us will be willing to buy this from you. 
three times increase in customer acquisition if we could figure out a way to put the charge on their phone bill, since it was kind of related to their phone service. So we shut down the entire billing strategy, survived three months of the dot-com crash, didn't raise any more capital, actually went back to our existing venture capital investors. There was no, you know, convinced them that this 30% number was magical, which is why I remember it. You know, if we just take three more months, we're going to get three times the number of customers. And we end up with 600,000 customers, um, ultimately 800,000 customers paying us five bucks a month. You do the math. It's about $50 million business. It was almost all profit, right? And uh, we hit profitability in kind of record time. So my point is that, guys, we were not that smart. We just did our homework. We looked at the industry structure, right? We figured out who to validate it with. We got really small. We sold to a small customer. We sold them a small product. We were a small startup company. And we ended up stealing for, for the money we were making at $50 million. Here's a key point I want you to understand. This will kind of drive it home. In $50 million in revenue across two, uh, eight, almost a million U.S. households, that revenue, if those customers were buying a phone line from the phone company, would have been a billion and a half dollars a year in revenue. So we were able to deliver the economic value of $1.5 billion with this scrappy little voice over IP application that everybody else kind of thought was just a toy, right? And we, and we grew so fast and had such satisfied customers because we only charged them five bucks. So, you know, almost 10 times what they would expect to pay for something. And that kind of value creation opportunity um, not only led to really a fun company, it was a great company, lots of great experiences and rewards, but it brought all kinds of new investors, we got a public offering done, um, you know, I, it's, uh, my tombstone is going to say an unlikely CEO. You know, I, I was an entrepreneur, I was a student of industrial organization theory, and I like to talk about microeconomic principles of complements and substitutes, right, really kind of dry stuff. I, no offense to the econ students here, you probably enjoy it too, but um, what that led me to was a situation where now I was actually doing a public offering, and then after that I was running a public company as a CEO. And uh, the, the, the skills that I needed to do that, I just want to share one skill that's ultra, ultra important. Ne if the voice of the customer was what got you there, don't stop listening to the voice of the customer after you've become successful. And you know, if you, if you fail to do that, all kinds of bad stuff's gonna happen. Like, you know, I grew up in the dial-up era and there was this company, AOL, and they were a great company at the beginning. I was actually in the room with those guys when there were only five of them talking about X25 versus TCP IP as the right protocol to build a dial-up. Literally, AOL had an X25 protocol and not internet protocol in their dial-up network. And they had to change TCP IP, right? Great little company. By the end, they'd done really, really fun things in the interest of listening to their shareholders and ignoring their customers, like when you go to cancel, they eliminated the op option to cancel from their website. When you call to cancel, 20-minute hold. If you get a hold of the operator, they send you back to the website to cancel, and you can't find the spot they sent you to. Really bad stuff. Don't stop listening to the voice of the customer. Don't think that your ideas, or better yet, your investors' ideas, are more important just because those are 
big names from Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. And uh, you know, that made being a public company CEO pretty darn uh, challenging. But we kind of got through it. And uh, the last point I'll make about that was that we all of a sudden we had this, in, you know, uh, Google actually penalizes you a share of stock if you look at the stock price while you're at, at the, the job. I, I heard that this morning. Can you imagine that? They catch you checking the stock price. They take a share of stock away from you. Bear in mind, their stock's trading at $563 at the market close today. No, $520.23. Um, they would fire me for checking the stock price daily. You know, I wouldn't survive there. But um, uh, they, they start asking the question, does the customer's voice, instead of does the customer's voice create value, they ask questions like, does the customer's voice move the stock price up? So uh, it was a great experience uh, running a public company, and we created value for all of our investors. We created value for all of our customers. But things got a little weird um, uh, when we, we kind of got drowned out and couldn't really hear the customer's voice anymore. So I can take lots of questions on that as we, as we uh, get to the end of the presentation here. But I did want to summarize for you the takeaways. Right, This is it. Right. Um, if you're interested in an industry, study the big changes in those industries. Go back in time. Um, get curious about complements and substitutes inside of that space. Seek small entry opportunities. Now, this isn't true of every innovation, right? If you're going to build the next generation product for an established company and be an employee there, you don't want to go and propose to them that they should sell to smaller customers because they're interested in selling to bigger and bigger customers. But if you're an innovator, you're an entrepreneur, uh, remember to validate your ideas with the end customer and think small. You know, look down market, find a user to serve, and let that user lead to devotion. And, and listen to the customer. You're going to feel humbled, you're going to have this positive energy, and you should be very devoted, you know, forgetting about your big vision of the industry. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this since I uh, retired from being a public CEO. Uh, where uh, an entrepreneur comes to me and they have a great vision for how an industry is going to transform, but they haven't taken it to the, to the conclusion of where are they going to enter? Who are they going to serve first? What product are they going to deliver? What channels are they going to sell it through? So you've got to do the visionary work and understand the industry, but don't start the company, really. Uh, my, my trigger point, right, when you're at the threshold of the business is... Uh, you re there's a state change for you, and it, it's a leadership change. You, you take on leadership skills. When you get this devoted to the voice of the customer, it's something you can amplify all the way through the organization, and there's no squabbling. There's no politics. Right? There's alignment to the goal. Everything gets justified because that's what the customer wanted. The customer wanted that billing system that put it on the phone bill. Everybody stopped what they were doing. Student body left and did something different for three months. Nobody complained. Not once. It was remarkable. Try doing that in a big company where you can't hear the voice of the customer anymore. Your unique opportunity as an entrepreneur is to have the voice of the customer amplified to the whole team. Okay, I won't dwell on that any longer. Okay, quick note about the future and then we'll take questions. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this guy. He was written up in Wired Magazine a little while back. Um, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, the patron saint of the internet, uh, guy's kind of a trippy guy, right? Jesuit priest gets excommunicated by the Catholic Church because he's both a Jesuit and a paleontologist. 
He's sort of balancing creationism versus evolutionary theory. Put them together in one theory, and what did he come up with? The internet. Okay, so that makes, that makes my journey far less strange. And, you know, the church never excommunicated me. My board kind of excommunicated me at one point, but that's a whole different story. Um, so what does the network look like in the future? Well, this is up, you guys are going to create this future, right? Uh, but I wanted to throw out there at least my take on the future, right? I think you're going to have these totally converged digital appliances that don't conform to telephone, computer, or entertainment. They're blended, the iPad, if you will. Um, you're going to have cheaper, dumber, and uh, faster IP networks everywhere, wireless and wired, right? And dumb networks, you know, that, that is what the Internet does well, right? It doesn't interfere in the application very much. Um, uh, it just gets the, the bits through the network. And, and you're going to have this uh, emergence of content and content management that uh, Chardin coined the term newosphere. I, I'm going to propose to you that maybe it's Google, you know, the Gutosphere, or Google and Oracle. Those guys are going to be, right now, they are singularly, singularly focused on content creation, content management, uh, content storage, uh, across everything that's happening in the digital economy. And I think that's the right orientation. You know, I've, I've turned this into a bit of an of a investment thesis. And, um, uh, you know, one of the things you get to do after you've uh, had a successful exit is you get to spend a lot of time thinking about what you're going to invest in. And I took everything that I learned, um, or at least thought I had learned, and I'm still learning, and I uh, started making investments around this strategy, and, and it appears to be working. You know, it's not perfect. But um, some of these bets uh, along this model of the future industry are, are turning into a better-than-market sort of performance. Uh, you're going to see endless applications. Uh, my son is, is doing a startup. He's 15. Um, I keep telling him to learn about industrial organization theory. He keeps, keeps telling me, I'm going to go ride my BMX bike, Dad. Um, and, uh, but he has started doing a startup, and, uh, and he's waiting for some bright entrepreneur to come up with an iPhone um, uh, template application creation environment. So if you guys want to do that, come talk to me. He wants to build an app for the iPhone that's kind of a Craigslist hybrid called Nixlister. And he's got the website, domain, and, and he's either going to do his homework or he's going to become an entrepreneur at 16. I don't know which. Um, and, uh, and that's the vision I have for applications. It's going to be increasingly easy to generate applications. Uh, is this a surprise to anybody? No. I mean, look at how many people are writing applications with less effort every day. How about writing an application and bootstrapping a business? I mean, it's never been easier to start a business. You guys have no idea how hard it was to start a business in 82. Uh, let alone in 98 when we did. We, we, we had to raise $28 million in venture capital uh, to get into the Internet space. What do you guys think? I mean, right now, if you want to get into the Internet space, what's the cost of entry? It's probably less than... 20 bucks. I love it. We should talk. Because um, <laughs> that's about all my son has. He's got about 20 bucks. Actually, he bought some Apple stock, and he's done really well with it, so who knows. Um, uh, and the users, the users, like my son, he's the user experience expert, right? He is the user. So if you're trying to get the voice of the user into the, the mind of the developer and the engineer, well, what if the engineer builds a great environment that lets the user just post some pictures into an uh, uh, app generation environment? It scans what the images are and creates an iPhone app or an iPad app experience out of that. 
That's what he's looking for, and uh, I don't blame him. Uh, and then finally, disruptive innovation uh, is going to spread. I just heard about uh, a young entrepreneur here, a PhD, in, uh, maybe in the Bren School or materials? Hmm? Materials. Uh, who's funded to build uh, organic solar panels. Um, I, I really would like to, to uh, offer some of these tools to him because I think uh, things like organic solar panels that are sort of as expensive as paint, <laughs> potentially, uh, are going to be highly disruptive. They're going to hit the down market. They're going to they're be deployed at the edge of the network, of the energy network. It's going to fit this model. And I'd hate to have him trying to sell Southern California Edison on organic solar panels. I mean, that is not going to fly. You know, and, and, and I have some direct experience with that through, uh, through a friend of mine. And then to food and health. And these are long-term changes. It's going to take you know, 10, 20, 30 years for this type of disruption to roll through those in industries. Um, but the tools of, of studying the industry structure, both complements and substitutes, um, uh, going to the right person for validation, typically down markets, smaller, and listening to the voice of the customer once you locate them, are great tools for working your way through some of the biggest changes in industry. When you were starting CallWave, there, was there ever a moment when you thought about giving up and going back to your 9 to 5? And if so, what helped you get through it? Um, I don't, I'm not, you know, it doesn't come to mind immediately. I, I don't think, uh, no, you know, I, uh, part, you know, that's probably not um, typical. I think maybe there are those moments where people want to go back to the, the certainty of a paycheck, right? We, we got up against payroll a couple times in the early days, and it would have been nice to not have to make sure that investor invested in two weeks so we could make the payroll. Um, those were stressful times. But in our case, I'd already gone to my employer, and I told him that the, the, you know, the telcos wanted unified messaging, but we couldn't get them to actually succeed in the market because the users didn't want it, right? So the, the channel liked the idea. It was a big, expansive concept. It wasn't even a disruptive idea. Um, but they couldn't succeed in the market. And, and because of that, the company that I was at that was selling to telcos was scared of the idea. And I actually gave them an option and licensed all the intellectual property of the idea to them. So my exit was unusual. And so I can't really say that you could extrapolate you know, that. You, you, you're probably going to encounter those moments. Um, but, you know, if you're really excited and high energy about the voice of the customer, you'll get through it. I've been looking into jobs with user experience because I just think it'd be really interesting to get out and talk to customers. But as I look around, I've been noticing it's pretty dry and like laboratory type settings. Do you know of any companies that have a really innovative way to do user experience research? Um, yeah, you just, I think you just want to go small. If you get a job at Apple, they figured out a way to be big and do excellent UX. Um, uh, user experience is a, is a great field. You know, if you wanted to get into industry and, and, and do what I did, you know, get inside an industry, you know, 
and, and maybe work in UX within the industry you're interested in. You know, maybe you're interested in, um, I don't know, web design or something. Who knows? Um, that would be a great way to learn an industry because at the same time, you're in that industry seeing what their process is for listening to the customer and, and vetting designs with the customer. There, uh, there are some great UX people in Santa Barbara. Um, so, some of them actually came out. We, we were a UX innovator uh, at CallWave, and um, we were one of the first companies here to really build out a, a user experience process and create business procedures uh, for doing that work. And um, so that there were kind of a number of, of people who spread, spread out from there. Is that John McFarlane again talking? Um, to do that. And I wish I could rem- think of some names. You know, I would, I would maybe go talk to uh, uh, the, the folks at um, Citrix and um, Klaus Schauser's company. Uh, or he started it. was one of the founders. And also, um, that is if you want to stay in Santa Barbara. Um, I mean, the, the epic example is sort of frog design in, in Silicon Valley. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's, they end up doing user experience for the big companies that are trying to catch Apple. And it's like a cultural change. You know, they're very hard. Putting a user experience process into a very large company is going to teach you about politics, not user experience. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.